Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, friend. The Mystical American Patriot Society is transmitting to you from beneath 4 million cubic feet of solid granite in the burning heart of the Yellowstone caldera. This is a variety program for normal sandwich-eating Americans with some concerns about living in a deranged, post-Christian technocracy. So, keep your third eye on the sky and your ear to the ground, as Sumo and Smokestack connect your main brain vein to a higher plane. Are you ready? Stand by. Sumo, my my main brain vein is ready. <laughs> I like that. My main brain vein. You do have a main uh, main brain vein. What's it called? I forget what it's called though. I studied it in anatomy class. Oh. It's you know the ve- the 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 uh, vein that you know veins carry the blood away, arteries carry the blood towards. Right. So I don't remember what it's called, but it's there's one there's a, there's a main artery and a main vein from your brain. And to your brain. And if those get cut off, you're in big trouble real fast. Well, that's good to know. That's the main thing I remember from that anatomy class. Well, let's not try <laughs> Let's try not to constrict any of them during the show this morning. Well, yeah, we're going to do some contortions. Uh, toward the end, we may do some contortions of, of, <clears throat> of minefields that uh, may threaten to constrict your brain veins. But hopefully Sweet. not. And okay. we must graduate Shodai Naoya for his valiant efforts in the recent sumo tournament in Japan. Mm-hmm. Great job, Shodai. Great job. One of my favorite one of my favorite wrestlers. We must all he's won uh, three fighting spirit championships. Awesome. Four prizes. Very strong. I'm trying to get everyone I'm trying this is part of the sumo revivalism. Okay. Or just vivalism because it was never big in America. Right. <clears throat> but uh I want you know how people talk about football. I want them to talk about obscure sumo wrestling just on the streets with each other. And make people, you know, that, sort of feel uncomfortable. They don't know. That sounds like a beautiful world that I want to live in. <laughs> I know we're gonna get we're gonna take sumo wrestling from the Japanese, and we're going to, in exchange, give them cowboy hats. I think that would, would be great. Well, you yeah, know, they make you look a little taller. Exactly. They're they're small. Yeah. Uh, very, but that's very good because they can they can work with electronics real well. Mm-hmm. Which is why they made the Walkman. Oh, the Walkman. and the Nintendo. Yeah. The, the Nintendo, and uh, do you know how? Do, what do you know about uh, cowboy hat fashion? Almost nothing. Wait, well, here's the wait, ma- wait. Yeah, no, nothing. Okay, I'll give you the two main basic rules for the the new cowboy hat wearer. Number one, and this is vital: a cowboy hat looks almost symmetrical, but it's not quite. And so, if you want to know which side goes to the front. You look inside your cowboy hat, and in every cowboy hat, every ma- there is a there is a they take the inside thread and they tie it into a little bow on the inside, and that is the back. The bow goes in the back. The bow goes to the back of the head. No, that's number one. That 
that will keep you from looking foolish while you're out on the ranch. Okay. And all the other cowboys will be like, this, this, this idiot has his cowboy hat backwards. All right, that's number one. Number two, this is of less importance, but still, you'll, you'll be committing a faux pas. Mm-hmm. Felt, felt cowboy hats are worn in the fall and winter months and straw in spring and summer. Do you want a oh. nice straw hat for the cool, you know, to be for the hot weather? Mm-hmm. That's you generally go with brighter colors, white, you know, maybe a brown, a light brown. Uh, but then in the winter months, you want a nice dark color, like a black, maybe a gray, that sort of thing. You're you're my second friend who is I find out deeply into hat fashion, in a like a traditional reactionary way. That's right. Well, I, I, I've always enjoyed hats. I have uh, several hats that I uh, wear only semi-occasionally because they're ridiculous in modern, <laughs> in yep. modern society. Yep. But so I, have a, I have a traditional Scottish hat, and I have a um, – uh, what's the French one called? A beret. I have a traditional French beret. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a pith helmet, oh, cool. which is good for on safari. Yep, yep, which I'd never get to use. Mm. I've I've thought about going on one of those car safaris just so I could wear it. Ha, I've I've done those; they're fun. Yeah, yeah. There's one not too far away, but I don't. I don't know. I think my uh, my kid is still at the age they would they would rather than scream with joy, they would scream with fear, like a zebra's head coming in the car. Yeah, when there's an elephant trunk <laughs> coming at you, I mean, it gives you yeah. pause, makes you think about your life. They're big. Yeah, they're real big. Animals are big. When they when they're real close to your face, they're they're real big. Have you ever been up real close to a wolf? No. There people think a wolf is like a big dog, but a wolf is about twice the size of the biggest dog you've ever seen. Yikes! It's the, <laughs> I saw one wolf in the wild once in Canada, and I, I saw it all along the road. It was up on the hillside, and I stopped my car to take a picture. And as soon as the instant I was starting to slow down. The wolf noticed me and bolted off into the woods, but it was gigantic. If you sit, I mean, they probably they probably get up near two hundred pounds, like a, a gray wolf in uh, Canada. Yeah, it's a large animal. It easily, easily. I mean, there's not easily, easily it would eat you. And that's not all fur. I mean, that's muscle. Oh yeah, yeah. No, no. I mean, they do. They they do have a lot of fur in mm-hmm. the in the winter months, but they are large creatures. Their head. The, the head, if you take the skull of a wolf and you put it up to a man's head, the skull of the wolf is bigger. It has a big jaw. It can oh, put man. your whole it can put your whole head in its mouth and start chewing on it. <laughs> That's it, the way to go right there. Yeah. Eaten yeah, head I, first by a wolf. I would rather, I think, be eaten by a bear than a wolf, because I think a bear would just kill you faster. Can you put wolf. that on can you put that on my epitaph? Even if what? it's not true, eaten head first by a wolf. Eaten head first by a wolf. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I'll I'm be, probably gonna die of cancer like everybody else, but I'd rather disease. I'd rather have that. Yeah, you know. Look, most Americans are gonna die by heart disease or in cancer. Oh, and or World War Three if that happens, which will probably kill a lot of people. But if that doesn't happen, yeah. And or, I'm not even or Civil about War these, too. You know. Yeah, yeah. That's I'm not even talking about likely. the Iran thing. I just mean vague, vague, the vague, vague World War Three doomsdayness. Yeah. You know. But if you do, uh, you can go out looking uh, like a like a cowboy champion. Now that you know about hats, I might get a felt cowboy hat. Yeah, they're good. They're good. They're ex- you know Western wear is expensive though. That's the problem. Yeah, 
Well, you like know, I, a good, a nice hat's going to set you back like 800 bucks of any kind, like a fedora or whatever. If you get a nice one that's made right. Yeah, it's true. And if you get like nice cowboy boots, I mean, get, they, you end up spending more than your wife on shoes. Yeah. I've got one pair. <laughs> I got one pair of like medium grade cowboy boots that I love. And they've, I've had them literally for 15 years. Yeah. I mean, they're great. They just yeah. don't die. That's right. If and American, they make me I, taller. That's true. If you're American, I recommend, of course, leather. Mm. If you are uh, Australian, I recommend, of course, ostrich leather, mm. which is a big, a big. Uh, and if you're down in Florida, then of course you want to go with alligator. Yeah, you want to wear. You want to shod yourself locally. That's right. You want to take whatever the local animal is yeah. and turn it into your your footwear. It could be armadillos, but that gives you leprosy sometimes. I'm not wearing armadillo shoes. Sorry, it's, I got I got standards, Sumo. Yeah, yeah. So, yes. So, okay. First, let's talk about this. Is because we we uh, I believe in the intro advertise ourselves as pseudo news at sometimes or something like that. We did. I actually just changed the intro yeah, and took say. out pseudo news. Maybe I should put it back in. Yeah. Well, anyway, let's do the pseudo news first. Okay. Uh, the, the recent thing in in Virginia. Oh man. Where they're doing something to try and uh I'm not it's not a wholly clear like they want they're not trying to take guns away but they want to make it illegal to use them or go to a shooting range or something. Well, it depends on who you listen to and which law you're looking at because there yeah. there there's a whole raft of laws that they're trying to pass, but they sum up to probably the worst most draconian gun banning in the country. So, right. worse than California. Uh yeah, and yeah. then and then you've got um, elected officials and other bureaucrats going out and talking to the media and saying things like, "Well, you know, if if the uh, the local sheriff refuses to uh, help us enforce these laws, we'll shut off the power and internet to the county and invade and do it ourselves." <laughs> I mean, they're saying things like this. Yeah, yeah. You've got to wonder. I mean, okay, out in Yankee Land or California, right. I get it. Like those measures had popular support. Right. They don't have it in Virginia, and mm-hmm. they just want to do it by force. And and add that to the fact that um, that this this thing coming up on the twentieth today is the what seventeenth. We got a couple days before the before it's the eighteenth. Yeah. Um, this protest on the twentieth, it it just it looks like confrontation is the goal of right. the Northam regime, um, and. It's got it's got me bothered, and I think it's kind of a historic moment for our country. It, right. I don't know exactly how because this right. can either end up like Charlottesville, where it's this embarrassing psyop, or it can end up like Waco with a bunch of people getting shot. Right. Um, and I well, I hope for neither, but it's not well, looking you know, here's, good. Here's the thing: I would remind uh, people is sometimes your government is antagonistic. And in such a case, you shouldn't walk into their traps. Yeah. Like, I, that's what I feel, uh, you know, in time, we don't know how it's going to turn out because we, we're not, it hasn't happened yet. But I suspect that this is um, a setup. Like, if you're going to this protest, they're going to be there looking for reasons to arrest you for, you know. Yeah, and they're, they're going to have. Manu- they're going to try and push the envelope and try to cause some sort of reaction and violence. In right. order to get people arrested, and then spin it their way in the news, and they're going to have right. a bunch of informants, you know, p- 
pulling out their their Nazi flags that still have creases in them, right? You know, right. and parading yeah. in front of the cameras to 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 make people that want to keep their freedom uh, look bad. And it's yeah, all yeah. just it's all just real predictable and lame. Yeah, and even if it even if it's not like some people can't buy that the FBI and the CIA occasionally like they'll infiltrate groups, you know, to try to make to control uh-huh. the optics. Even if it's not, if you've got thousands of people, you know, tens of thousands of people, come, yeah, one lunatic might come out and unfurl a Nazi flag. Yeah, and they'll get all sure. they'll get all and the press. And, all, yeah. and yeah. all of the news will be on that guy. Right. It's like you know, it's like if you're if you're concerned about uh, Occupy Wall Street, same thing. And then like they focus on like the ten people out of those. I mean, that was like a hundred thousand people all told, and there yeah. were like ten people that had, you know, communist flags. Right. They're like, look at all the communists, you know. Yeah. And. and it's the same thing. That's because the the news wants the story, and the then the most outrage sells. Yeah, I question whether or not uh, these political demonstrations have much value in the modern world. No, they don't. Political yeah. political demonstration is something that the government does yes. to give them they they organize them to yes. give them the appearance of support for the thing they already want to do. So yes. if you truly are a grassroots. Uh, "Quote unquote, like organizer or protester, and you don't have right. some big government or quasi government entity funding and organizing you, you're gonna get Charlottesville. You're not gonna get, yeah. you know, uh, women's march, right? Or you're gonna right. get mar- March for Life that is huge and happens every year in Washington D.C. and doesn't ever get reported on ever. That's right. That's right. You know, right. it, it happens yeah. in a vacuum, uh, and yeah. that that so at best your protest will happen in a rhetorical vacuum and no one will hear it." And at worst, um, you'll be uh, entrapped because this this Richmond thing is setting up to be maybe a literal, but probably a rhetorical kill box. I mean, yeah. it's it's just it looks really bad. And this is where this is where like this is all of the all of the boomers involved. Yeah, are of good hearts. Yeah. Well, they 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 learned in school in the '60s that protest is the way to get what you want. Protesting is the biggest friggin' scam. Yes. Oh man, it's such a scam. Stupid protesting. We respect our elders here, but this is one area I think the younger generations could get. Like, look, look in the internet age, all they want to (laughs) do. Well, I don't think the younger the younger generations aren't doing much better because they're showing up to stupid stuff like this. Yes, I know they're. Look, democ- first of all, we do not live in a democracy. Yep. We live in uh, we live in uh, uh, an oligarchy with uh, Te- technocratic trappings. Technocratic, technocratic oligarchy. oligarchy run. Yes. Yes. With with but, the veneer of democracy, where you pick you pick factions. I have a quote. Right. I have a quote later. Talks okay. about the illusion of democracy is just picking factions. But here's the thing to realize: one, that's okay because that's always been the case in democracy. Yeah, there, it's never been real. <laughs> democracy and, is fake and gay, as old Jay Dyer would say. Well, it's true. You know, the only time democracy's in the Bible is when they choose Barabbas over Jesus. Interesting. That's the only time it's in there, right? It's you know, so it's doesn't it's it's always, and you know, demo, it says it in the name. This is you got to pay attention to the names. D like uh, aristocracy means rule by the elites, right? Mm-hmm. The, 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 and mm-hmm. monarchy means rule by the monarch mm-hmm. and bureaucracy means rule by bureaus. Democracy literally means rule by demon. Demonocracy. <laughs> it, 
It totally does. That's not even a lot. That's the root word because the daemon in Greek was the spirit of the city, right? Which is from where is the is the or the, or just the spirits in general of the world from which Paul got he he roughly like it from when Paul used the word daemon he changed it to demon, mm-hmm. right? In his dialect, or I'm not quite sure how that worked, but, but it's, it's the, the same, same word. It's the same word. So it doesn't really mean ruled by the people. No, it, it means ruled by the. It means ruled by the daemon, and the daemon was the spirit that controlled the people. Is this like a zeitgeist sort of thing? Yeah. No. Look it up. Like democracy, 100 <clears throat> percent means ruled by demon. That does not at all surprise me at this point in history. <laughs> yeah. So I, sounds I'm just legit. <laughs> democracy is faking gay yeah and it's also demonic mm-hmm. by it, it self-admittedly yeah and uh and it also doesn't it's not we don't really have it so that's another thing like it's it, <laughs> so don't worry about being ruled by demon too much because we don't really you know right the founding fathers were they were very conflicted people and they were like, "How can we? How can we have uh, uh, not have a king, but not have a democracy?" And they invented this wild system mm-hmm. of a republic. And then you look at the how you look at the the way the um, rule is set up. They were like, well, "Let's have everything. Let's have like a little king. He's the president, and then we'll have like a a steer group of elders, and they'll be the senate. Mm-hmm. And then we'll have just like." Just like all the populism getting in there in the in the house, and that's just where all the democracy happens. Right. So they're like, let's have a republic, a democracy, and a king all in one, and that's why the system is crazy. This reminds me of this little meme I saw recently, and it had um, these two Aztec dudes standing in front of the 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 sacrificial altar, and this and the this poor guy's getting his guts ripped out, you know, for the right. for the Aztec gods. And the one looks at the other, they, they got sad faces, and the one looks at the other and he says, you know, it's not a perfect system, but it's the best one there is. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. That's probably always been. Yeah. And, you know, people are always convinced that their system is the best system. Oh, man. Yeah. Like, I'm sure I'm sure in China right now, there's like a bunch, there, probably most of the population fed on Chinese news their whole life for like, well, you know, this is the best system. It's got some problems. Yeah. yeah, we put a bunch of people in camps, but well, it's the only it's the only lie that you can really maintain over the long term, right? You know, people aren't going to believe that the system is perfect, but they right. might believe that all the other systems are worse than whatever yeah. you're going through. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and so everyone all over the world believes they're doing it the best. The Russians are like, yeah, well, you know, you know <laughs> this is what you got to have. Yep. And I don't even blame the Russians for the way they are. Because if you look at Russian history, they spent the last 200 years just getting slaughtered. Yeah. And now they're like, they're like ah, just what? We hate everything. Whatever. Stay whack. Yeah. You know? Can't blame them. No. If you spend 100 years, every, every couple of 15 years, like a giant army just rolls across the Asia into your land and just wipes out everybody, then you, then you elect a Putin, you know? Yeah. Because <laughs> at least he will fire missiles at people, and that'll be helpful. They're doing some pretty serious uh, government restructuring right now. It looks like. Yeah, they are. They are. I'll be interested yeah. to see how that turns out. You know the uh, the uh, Russians say Africa for them begins at the Ukraine. Sorry, Ukraine. Africa begins at the Ukraine. That's their way of sliding Ukraine. They they 
they don't like the they like to they're saying like we view that as like that and below is all like third world well i guess they took the part of ukraine that they wanted <laughs> yeah yeah you know that yeah the ukraine the rest of it you can keep yes but once we bring sumo wrestling to russia also mm-hmm. then we will have brought world peace that's what's gonna do it that's what's gonna do it the, the Japanese are actually very upset right now because they don't, you know, they're tiny people. Yeah. And for years they've been getting walloped by foreigners coming in and wrestling. Oh, yeah. And mostly Mongolians because Mongolians are huge. I don't know if you've ever, I've seen a wrestle a Mongolian before. I have not. They are, they are quite big, quite big men, uh, both, both in height, but also in stockiness. Mm-hmm. Imagine like a, um, Imagine like an Icelandic Asian. Okay. And that's what a Mongolian is. They're very large, but look Chinese. And uh, the first, <laughs> the first, I knew this fella named, uh, the guy I wrestled named Biamba. And uh, uh, we were at the, we were going to the tournament and the night before uh, it, it was in Los Angeles. And they're like, let's go out and, you know, let's go out for drinks and stuff. And I was like, okay. So I go out, like, where's Biamba? And, and he comes Walking down the street in the middle of Los Angeles, like in the middle of the road, nothing but his underwear and some sandals, holding a giant bottle of sake and just screaming. Awesome. (laughs) Mongolians, they know how to party. Mongolians are absolutely insane. And if I've been told that if you ever visit Mongolia, you understand because it's it's mostly the Gobi Desert. Mm -hmm. And they're like, so it's kind of like an Icelandic Asian that is also mixed with a Bedouin herder. Okay. It's all the crazy stuff thrown in together. And, and you know, so. You got to have I a screw loose to be a nomadic people. You do. You do. Uh, but I enjoy them. But, yes. But we're going to talk about a different kind of Asian. All right. Right now. Okay. The, the Englishman. What? You know, I say that because I've often compared the English to the Japanese. Because they're both, they both live on an island. They're both sort of like the continent next to them, but not really. Uh, they both like tea. They both had a feudal system. They both had knights in armor. Okay. Very similar. Very very similar. So I consider the English the Western Asians. Right on. For the purposes of that segue. That's the the main reason I consider them that. But I was going to talk about, we're going to talk about uh, G.K. Chesterton's poetry. Sweet. Poetry. Because men have abandoned poetry. We got to get back into poetry. That's true. Yep. Because, and because poetry is like like all right. Think about all the great poems. Okay. What do you got? You got the Iliad. You got the Odyssey. Mm-hmm. You got uh, the Aeneid. That's the, that's the triad. The Aeneid, you know, is a is a fan fiction of yeah. the Roman yeah. Empire, but it's still it's still very good. Uh, Fifty Shades of Homer. Yeah, Fifty or, Shades of Homer. Yeah. Uh, you've got um, Beowulf. Yeah. Right. Excellent. You've got the Song of Roland. Great. Uh, you know, you've got uh, Paradise Lost. You've got Dante's Inferno. You've got all of, uh, all, all through the ages, men of high culture have, have produced yeah. poetry of both small and large scale. Don't forget Thomas Carlyle. Yes, Thomas uh, all yeah. over. Yeah. What, what is your favorite? I mean, I like Carlyle because that's what I've read recently. Yes, yeah. And, and, uh, you know, there, there was this, uh, you know, Thucydides said, uh, the Greek general, he said, 
the nation that makes a sharp distinction between its warriors and its scholars will have its decisions made by cowards and its wars fought by fools. Ooh. And that is very true. <laughs> and that's what we've done. There's, you know, in the 80s, there was a sharp distinction made between the jock and the nerd. Mm-hmm. And like in all the movies, and everyone's like, well, you got to be either a jock or a nerd. And what, what the mystical American Patriot Society is declaring is, no, you have to be both. You have to be a jock and a nerd. I love it. You have to be, you have to know science and you have to know art and poetry. Probably, you should probably play some music you should, or, or do some sort of art. And you should also uh, be, uh, you know, some sort of uh, athlete. Best you can. I mean, you know, for those of you that have lost a limb or whatever, uh, do the best you can. But, you know, because that's going to come in later. Right. The lost limb people. <clears throat> but, so th- is, that, uh, is that a maxim of maps? Is that the jock, jock nerd is a false dialectic that we need to break down? Jock nerd is a false dialectic, right. And you need to, you got to bring it back. And plus, uh, uh, you know, uh, I think that would, I think women would really appreciate that also. Yeah. They don't, they don't like choosing between jocks and nerds. Yeah, they, they want both. Some, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Everyone, everyone wants you to be both. Stop choosing one or the other. You can like, like football, and that's great. You can be into football. You can play all your life. You can watch the games, but you shouldn't only watch ESPN all the time. Like yeah. you know, you see these guys, and it's like all it's on TV in their house all the time, and all they talk about is sports. Yeah, it's like sports is great, but you should also occasionally talk about like um, uh, Picasso's Blue Period or whatever. You know, <laughs> you yeah. gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta be cultured and right. Right. That's what being a gentleman is, by the way. There's to be like to be a gentleman. You first have to be a man. That mm-hmm. was the idea, right? Yeah. A sort of a cultured person. Yeah. And I want to talk about my favorite poet of the last century. Really, really, at this point, we're getting on a century and a half. Uh, G.K. Chesterton. All right. <clears throat> because he was a British man, uh, of course, famous Catholic, uh, not really theologian writer for mm-hmm. sure. Um, I would say not theologian because his his philosophy is so um, uh, not uh, despairing. Yeah, you know theologians theologians love to get uh, they love to make things ironclad and da 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 da. Mm-hmm. And Chesterton is more like just he just plays with it like a child. Yeah, and he, he's and he, sort of an artful rhetorician of of yeah. theology. Yeah. And I have I have in my hand the collected poetry of G.K. Chesterton. He wrote some epic poems as well. He also just wrote a bunch of silly poems, uh, a bunch that were you know small but meaningful. His his Ballad of the White Horse is great. Awesome. It's about about um, it's about a sort of a mini crusade, not against Islam, if I remember right, but against uh, the invading Saxons. Okay. <laughs> it's about the Saxons, but anyway. Um, I was going to read a couple of them, and then we'll talk about them. Awesome. And this is Chesterton's first poem uh, that I was going to talk about. Not his first poem. He wrote it. This is called The Strange Music. The Strange Music. And it's a, it's a love poem to his wife. <clears throat> I, think, I think when they were first getting together. So just listen to this, and you can hear sort of like this, uh, this genius in it. He says, The Strange Music. Other loves may sink and settle. Other loves may loosen slack. But I wander like a minstrel with a harp upon his back. Though the harp be on my bosom, though I finger and I fret, still my hope is all before me, for I cannot play it yet. In your strings is hid a music that no hand hath e'er let fall. In your soul is sealed a pleasure that you have not known at all. 
Pleasure subtle as your spirit, strange and slender as your frame. Fiercer than the pain that folds you, softer than your sorrow's name. Not as mine, my soul's anointed. Not as mine, the rude and light. Easy mirth of many faces, swaggering pride of song and fight. Something stranger, something sweeter, something waiting you afar. Secret as your stricken senses, magic as your sorrows are. But on this, God's harp supernal, stretched but to, stri stretched but to be stricken once. Hoary time is a beginner, life a bungler, death a dunce. But I will not fear to match them. No, by God, I will not fear. I will learn you, I will play you, and the stars stand still to hear. It's a beautiful poem. That is beautiful. And I think about that. That is that is the best in a time of of uh, hookup culture and pickup artistry and all this. Yeah. This is the best. He's comparing like on this God's harp supernal, God's cosmic harp. He's calling his wife like a a cosmic harp made just for him. Right. Wow. Yeah. Right. And he says, I will not. He says, no one can play you. No one knows how to bring out your the music of your soul. Not not time, not life, not death. Like, hoary time is a beginner, life a bungler, death a dunce. <clears throat> but I will not fear to match them. No, by God, I will not fear. I will learn you, I will play you, and the stars stand still to hear. Right? Now, that's that's a romantic notion. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like, if you, his idea here is that if he loves his wife properly, that even the stars will stand in awe. Right? Yeah, Which yeah. Which is, I think that's very true. I think that's the way that love is supposed to be. Yeah. You know, and he goes through here, you know, my soul's anointed. It's a his she's a harp uh, strung, but to be stricken once stretched, but to be stricken once. So she's she was made only for him to play. Right. Yeah. Right. Stretched, but to be stricken once so that specifically so that the music could rise to heaven. Right. And then for this is his joy. And another thing I like in here, he says at the very beginning, my hope is all before me for I cannot play it yet. So he doesn't assume this is going to be easy. Right. Right. His, his relationship, he's like, well, I have to learn to play this instrument uh, that's called my marriage. I have to learn to play it. Uh, and it will be, I liken it unto a classical piece of music, like a classical instrument. It's going to be a, it's going to be a challenge. Well, that's an interesting point because, you know, our, I guess insofar as our culture <laughs> considers marriage anymore at all, it considers it a finish line rather than a starting line. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And like you should, after you have a long, like he's, he's saying, no, look, I, this is going to, this is going to be as hard as learning like a, a cosmic harp. Yeah. But, but he says, I will not fear to, to, to match them, to match time, life, death, you know, no, by God, I will not fear. I will learn you. I will play you and the stars stand still to hear. Right. And so that's a song. That's, that's, I mean, if you write something like that for a woman and you're trying to get engaged with, she's going to say yes. Oh man. It's guaranteed. <laughs> right. So that is the kind of, and, and notice that's not like, there's not a lot of, one of the problems is poetry took on this pretense of like just showing off your own intelligence. Right. You know, like, look at me, I'm a deep thinker. He yeah. doesn't have a lot of that in here. There's no like huge words or whatever. And he's not trying to make ridiculous connections. No, he's, he's just, it's very sincere, beautiful sentiments. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And it put forward in a clever way. Yes, yeah. and that is that is uh, Chesterton is the Chesterton is a man that maintained his childlike wonder throughout his whole life, mm -hmm. <clears throat> and this colored everything he wrote. <clears throat> I'll show you this one. Uh, this is called the Song of the Children, and this is the way he thought about Christ. <clears throat> okay, the Song of the Children. 
The world is ours till sunset, holly and fire and snow, and the name of our dead brother who loved us long ago. The grown folk, mighty and cunning, they write his name in gold, but we can tell a little of the million tales he told. He taught them lies and watchwords to preach and struggle and pray, but he taught us deep within the hayfield the games that angels play. He Had he stayed here forever, their world would be wise as ours, and the king be cutting capers, and the priest be picking flowers. But the dark day came, they gathered. On their faces we could see. They had taken and slain our brother and hanged him on a tree. Right? Yeah. So there, Chesterton, Chesterton had this thought. He said, when the Bible, like, I'm paraphrasing, but he's like, when the Bible says Christ went out to pray, it means he went out to dance with butterflies. Huh. Right? When he went up by himself. Because Chesterton's view was that God was always laughing. God was always in in. in like the, at the heart of God, there was always mirth and merriment and laugh, laughter. Okay. And he said somewhere that, um, you know, a child can, one of the reasons adults have trouble playing with kids is because they want to, kids never get tired of things. Mm-hmm. And they're like, do it again, do it again. And you've done it, you've, you've done the little <laughs> puppet show 10,000 times, right? That's truth, man. <laughs> and, and then you're like, okay, I'll do it again. Yeah. Because uh, they laugh at it the same every time. Right. And Chesterton's view was that every single day God says to the sun, do it again. Right. He just, he just loves it so much. And to the flowers, do it again, you know. And he says, but we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. And that, I think that is so true. And then, so that's why Jesus says the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these, talking mm-hmm. about the children. You know, and, and he brings up in here, like, look, he taught the adults who needed to think this way, who needed, he taught them laws and watchwords to preach and struggle and pray, play and pray. But he taught us, the children, deep in the hayfield, the games that angels play. You know, That's like, cool. like yeah. yeah, it's a totally different, it's a different view of God. Mm-hmm. You know, we view God as the stern grandfather. Yeah. And, and he's like, well, no, no, no. God is not in the slightest bit old. Old is what happens when you sin. Right. Like. Death and decay and becoming old and growing bored of yeah. the world. That's what the sin brings about. You know? I guess the, the, the grumpiness comes from being uh, knocked down and defeated over and over right. again throughout your, your, your sinful life. Right, and God has never yeah. been knocked down and defeated. Like, yeah. He's, yeah. he's just <clears> – <throat> and this is, a, this is a perfect example of that. This is, this is his other poem called The Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days. A child sits in a sunny place, too happy for a smile, and plays through one long holiday with balls to roll and pile. A painted windmill by his side runs like a merry tune, but the sails are the four great winds of heaven, and the balls the sun and moon. A staring doll's house, a staring doll's house shows to him green floors and starry rafter, and many-colored graven dolls live for his lonely laughter. The dolls have crowns and orioles, helmets and horns and wings, for they are the saints and seraphim the prophets and the king. So there you have a vision of God as he's, he's the soul. He's just going to say, look, the solar system is just God playing with balls. Huh. You know, <laughs> it's just God having a great time. He's out there rolling stuff around. He's like, isn't that beautiful? Mm-hmm. If, if you had to distill Chesterton's theology into one thing, it would be God was looking at things that were happening and going, my, is it this great? This is so great. Like just, <laughs> Look at how beautiful that is! Wasn't that? And it's just laughing all the time. Does you know? he does he ever address uh, um, God's grief at sin? 
he does in other poems like you know but it's it's framed in a grief like it, it is it is the grief of someone not getting returned love like it's somewhere right. it's like uh it's like uh, you know, it's like Jesus when he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I, lo- I have longed to gather you under my wing like a mother hen, but you would not. Mm-hmm. Sestin's like, well, that's that is the sorrow God feels. He's wants to he wants to gather his children to him and like snuggle on the couch. But his right. children will not. Right. And that that is the source of his sadness. Uh, OK. But, you know, it is it is. um uh It's a very it's a very different outlook than a lot of people have. Like, like, uh he doesn't. He doesn't view the world as serious so much as sincere, mm-hmm. and that seriousness comes from people that are, have done wrong, right? You know, and uh, like he he would say <clears throat> that there's a lot of um, you can see God's humor in the in the whole world, like you know, like kangaroos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's like, he's like, well, of course, God has a sense of humor. Kangaroos, right? Right. right. They're ridiculous. And uh, he said in one other place, this wasn't in a poem, but he said, um, "It's one thing to be astounded at a griffin or a gorgon, a creature that does not exist. It's another thing to look at a rhinoceros or, gir- or a giraffe, mm-hmm. a creature which does exist but looks as though it doesn't." Right. Yeah. And that's that. That's that childlike sense of wonder all the time. Like Justin is walking around his whole life, like, oh. That rhinoceros is ridiculous. <laughs> what, what is that? Right, you know? And um, so this is one, this is a bit more, uh, I would say, cryptic, but it sums up the whole, his whole outlook. And it's called The Fish. It, it's, this, is, this is Chesterton's poem about his encounter with a fish in a pond. Okay. Okay. So keep that in mind and you'll be able to interpret it. Or in the sea, rather. Dark the sea was, but I saw him. One great head and Google eyes, like a diabolic cherub flying in those fallen skies. I have heard the horse deniers. I have known the wordy wars. I have seen a man by shouting seek to orphan all the stars. I have, be- I have seen a fool half-fashioned borrow from the heavens a tongue, so to curse them more at leisure, and I trod him not as dung. For I saw that finny goblin hidden in the abyss untrod, and I knew there must be laughter on the secret face of God. Blow the trumpets, crown the sages, bring the age by reason fed. He that sitteth in the heavens, he shall laugh, the prophet said. So he's, he's staring down at this fish looking up at him. And he compares it to a finny goblin in the fallen skies of the ocean. And he's like, and the whole thing is, if you stop and look at it, if you, if you just encounter it for the first time like you would a baby, you're like, right. like a baby would. Like that is a ridiculous thing. That fish <laughs> down in the water with its googly eyes and fins, and he's like, and he says, when I saw it, I knew there mu- there must be laughter on the secret face of God. Well, it's, right, it's, because this is in spite of all other appearances from the world of man and how grumpy and unhappy it is. Right. He's he's taking the the position that God has a funny sense of humor by this fish. Right, which, okay. which, when you think about it, is obvious. It's like, yeah, that God, God has made the beautiful peacock, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. and also this ridiculous fish with this giant eye. It's like, whoa, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the water. And Chesterton's view was that God was up there going, ah, that's hilarious. <laughs> Look at that fish. <laughs> Look at that fish. You know, that's what God is like, uh, yeah, fundamentally. Yeah. And 
you know, and that's what heaven is like. Uh, and he saw this in everything. And that's where his mysticism comes in because he sees it even in death. And I'll, I will, I will read this, uh, <clears throat> this last one. It's called the skeleton and it's about a skeleton. It's about a skull. Okay. <clears throat> and I'm not sure if this was prompted by actually seeing a skeleton or just his imaginations, but it's a very short one, but this is my favorite Chesterton poem. Chattering finch and waterfly are not merrier than I. Here among the flowers I lie, laughing everlastingly. No, I may not tell the best. Surely, friends, I might have guessed. Death was but the good king's jest. It was hid so carefully. So you think about it. Here among the flowers I lie, laughing everlastingly. Mm-hmm. If a skull, if you, a, skull, a skull, the last thing it's doing is laughing. Right, yeah. Right? The skull is smiling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so he he sees this and he's like, aha, right? I get I get it. The, the the skeleton is saying, surely, friends, I might have guessed. Death was but the good king's jest. It was hid so carefully. So the, the even in death, he sees creation and man as finding happiness. Okay. Because because then they they cross over the veil and they see, oh, I get it, right? And mm-hmm. then you see what's to come. And then it's a, a fulfillment of happiness, right? The, the, the darkness only exists because we're on this side of the veil. Right. And that's why when you have, through the eyes of faith, you see, see beyond it, and you're like, aha. That's why, that's why all the saints could go to their, and the martyrs could go to their deaths with, with rejoicing. Yeah. You know, and uh, because it, it wasn't a sad thing. But, so that's the poetry of Chesterton. Some of it. It's it's a very he wrote a lot of it. I just picked out some select pieces. Well, yeah, I found that kind of challenging because, you know, uh, some of that content my my initial reaction is to think, "Oh, that's mighty irreverent." Right, right. You know, and maybe and maybe if I think about it, um I should be finding uh joy and laughter and all these things because right. the the gospel has made that possible. Because there exactly. is there is an answer for sin, right? And, and the ills of the world, you know, right? And like, and I mean, if you read the garden, if you read about the Garden of Eden, it appears as though everything was made for you know enjoyment, and and you know he looks at everything and says, "Oh, this is very good." Yeah, this is very good, you know. And and here, Adam, uh, all of this is for you. Yeah, you know. And then we get the idea of like, ah, we have to, you know, just respect it. He's like. Respecting is fine, but if respect and reverence keeps you from enjoying something, then mm-hmm. you're not you're not doing it as God wants. Yeah, you know, like his his if you take you taking joy in his creation is one of his highest pleasures. So one one of the one of the things I I uh, I do on Sundays is uh, I'm in charge of the children's Sunday school program at uh-huh. our church, and so I spend some time with the the little ones um, teaching them, and we sing. And one thing I've noticed is that children um, have a much easier time being joyful in praising yeah. God than adults. Yeah. I mean, really enjoying it. Yes, and you know, yeah. and they and they a lot of you know, uh, you know, like uh, it depends on your language, but like a lot of uh, groups, denominations will will call their their service the celebration of the Eucharist, right? For whatever, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, you know, how many people are actually celebrating? Right, you know, they're they're all somber and. It's like that old joke. Uh, there was there was a bunch of um, you know um, waspy people, very uh, mm-hmm. 
very well to do and they were sitting around at a dinner party and they you know they were going around talking about uh death after the end like what do you think will happen and you know blah, blah, blah. and there was a buddhist there and a there was a someone that was into you know taoism and they got around to the protestant guy and he said well i'm quite certain that i shall go to heaven to live in joy everlasting with all of my loved ones and eternal life but i do wish you'd quit bringing up such a depressing topic you know <laughs> And that is the attitude. Yeah, so man. Are, it's like, do you really like? Do you really believe all this? <laughs> you know, if you if you really think that way, then then yeah. you have the attitude of the skeleton, the skull, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know that that is the the challenge in Chesterton is to actually experience joy, because you should have joy, right? It's yeah. supposed to be the good news. It's this is the gospel, right? The good news. But yeah. so many people do not. They're, they're very somber about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so that's the, that's Chesterton. We've got to get back into poetry. Chesterton's a good starting place. C.S. Lewis wrote great poems also. They were, they were almost contemporaries, but not quite. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chesterton, I think they technically were, like they were alive at the same time, but Chesterton was a good deal o- older. And um, uh, T.S. Eliot's a good place to start. Because if you, if you, some people are intimidated by going way back in time to start right. you know, at the yeah. basics. Although... You should not be because the Iliad is great, and if you find a good translation, mm-hmm. the Iliad is basically the starting Western canon. Well, I read um, I read a passage out of the Odyssey recently. It was, it was quoted in something else I was reading, but um, when when Odysseus finally gets home and he goes to his wife, mm-hmm. and she doesn't believe it's really him, and he identifies himself I- by knowing. Um, by knowing the particulars of the construction of their bed. It's yeah. really just a beautiful little passage. And, oh, and, the whole thing is fantastic. And, and it, it was totally... I've never read the thing in its entirety. Yeah. I've been intimidated just to start it. But that was... I mean, just that... The passage I read was just... It was gorgeous. It was so oh. pleasant. Oh, you know, uh, Odysseus's dog... <laughs> when he leaves, he's been gone for like 15 years, I think. I forget how it is. Yeah. Or maybe longer. But anyway, in the poem, his dog, when he comes back home, he's finally made his way back home after this epic journey being, you know, tested by men and gods and spirits and monsters, mm-hmm. you know, finally makes his way back home. And his dog raises up his head, sees his master, wags his tail, he licks his hand. And then the dog dies because the dog has been waiting yeah. just for his master to return. You know, mm-hmm. it's like even these, even the Greeks had this, you know, you find all these, these things that resonate with modern people so much, even in the ancient Greeks. Yeah. And, um, it, it explains women also. There's a passage, you know, where, um, Zeus's wife, Hera, uh, she gets mad at, at um, at the Greeks or the Trojans. I get it. It's been a while since I read it. But anyway, she's mad at one of them. And she wants Zeus to come and like mess him up in this war, you know. And he's like, ah, I'm not I'm interested. And so then, you know, to, to do with your petty feud. And so then uh, Hera does the line that is indicative of all womankind since. She goes, because she says, well, I will then, she says, I'm going to go to Hades and ask him instead. And she says, she declares, if I cannot rouse heaven, I, if I cannot wake heaven, I will rouse hell. <laughs> and that. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way women have been. She's like, well, if yeah. Zeus, if if God won't listen to me, that devil will. And then, <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. And, yeah, it's so it's uh, everything about uh, about those is is uh, timeless. 
Yeah. Which is why they stood the test of time. But, uh, uh, but and yeah, it makes we, you wonder why, probably, what, what's wrong with our culture that we can't produce anything of that caliber? I know. I know. The last, um, what was the last great epic poetry written? I, I don't, it really was in the romantic period, I suppose. Um, I mean, Chesterton did write some, and people have written some, but it hasn't really caught well, hold of the culture, you know. Carlyle wrote the French Revolution in yeah. I don't know what when he actually wrote it. I've got it on the shelf somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll have to look that up. You so, have to you have to have a view of life as actually having transcendent significance to write an epic poem. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Right, because like the the Greeks saw their the Greeks saw their war with the Trojans as having as being a war between the gods and heaven. Mm-hmm. And they were just fighting it out through these people, right? right. And so, and that's and and uh, in order, you have to have a cosmic, uh, mystical sense in mm-hmm. order to make great art in general. That's why art is terrible now. Yeah, because people people don't think anything has any meaning. Yeah, modern art is totally non transcendent. I mean, it's it's anti-transcendent. It's, it is. It is. It's also uh, half of that is just because it's it's a money laundering scheme. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it is yeah. like you know you like the damn banana on the wall. Yeah, <laughs> it's just the a wall. money laundering scheme. You you steal some money in some way, or you do some fraudulent business dealings, and then you go buy this ridiculous piece of art for like twenty thousand dollars, and then you through the media you like you. Know, hype it up as like this is some big thing and then you that's where you're inve- then you resell it later and you get your money back now your money's clean there you go a lot and a lot of artists know this and they do it directly i i have i, I believe have that yeah I, the, the modern art has become a half and half a money laundering scheme but it's also just because people have a terrible metaphysic but well the, i think the only way to explain the 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 civic sculpture in the, the city where i live is is that it's a money laundering scheme. <laughs> yeah, it's what a lot of it is. It's, it's just so butt ugly. I can't even. Man, it's terrible. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, so you wanted to talk about something. Yeah, that we'll do good. some. We will do some people skills. What? What would you say? You do here. I have people skills. We have people skills. We got them. So today's people skill. We're going way back. We're going uh-huh. way, way back to the primal place of the okay. first tool the first uh, tool. okay uh a rock well i mean sort of but you don't make a rock True. once you make it it's something else a sharpened stick i uh, is you're getting so close maybe um, the sharpened stick was first maybe this is the second tool i don't know i wasn't <laughs> okay, there okay. We're, okay. we're talking about making your own knife oh good, good. which May sound, you know, a little pedantic at first, but I feel like there is some deep philosophical importance to this. Right. Okay. Um, because you're making a tool. Yes. That, that you can yes. then use to go do other things. Right. So it's an, it's a, it's an activity um, that builds skills in uh, manipulating materials to serve your purposes. Which is which is what non-industrial life was all about, or pre-industrial right. life was all about. Um, you're you're autonomously manipulating your environment, and a knife is one of those like basic day one sort of things that you need to learn to use to mm-hmm. make to make a life out in the world somewhere where you're not right. living in a pre-manufactured bubble. 
And listeners should know, Smokestack has actually done this. He's a he is a hobbyist blacksmith. Yeah. So and has actually made a knife from like from like raw materials. Right. So yeah, this is a hobby of mine, uh, an occasional hobby. I don't claim to be very good at it, but I make, I use knives a lot, mm-hmm. and I try to make as many of my own knives that I use okay. in my yes. other in my other outdoor pursuits. Um, and so you can. This is something that you can do with some very basic materials you can you can order uh, a piece of steel and you can get a file and a hacksaw and some wood and some epoxy and you can make so i don't need a i don't i don't need a uh, smelter or a no man forge no i mean if you want to if you want to really like hammer out the knife and for right. and forge a knife forging a knife is a very high level of making a knife but okay Okay. But that, but if you just want to get started, which is kind of the uh-huh. spirit of this segment, you can you right. can just buy a piece of tool steel. Uh, mm-hmm. I recommend O one tool steel. I'll get into the particulars of what I recommend in a minute. But it's something that you can do without power tools. Okay, mm-hmm. you can heat treat it on a barbecue grill with a fan or a leaf blower to heat the coals up real hot. I mean, this is this is something that seems. Uh, impossible to modern man, but just with mm-hmm. the smallest amount of knowledge, anybody can do, and it's very gratifying. And okay. then it keeps being gratifying, and it enhances all the things you do with it. So you're making like a you're making like a semi oven with coals and a leaf blower. Yes, yeah, right. you can totally so the just rig putting this. the oxygen through, heating up the coals. Okay, right, I'm, I'm with you. Well, the beauty of this is is you can rig up whatever you need with a little ingenuity to make a really nice, very functional knife that you will right. have your entire life and you can be right. proud of. And it's a real, for me, it was kind of, starting to do this was a philosophical kind of eye-opener. It's like, no, I don't, I don't need to buy the things of my life from some giant corporation. Right. I can do, right. Some, right. I can do some things for myself. Yeah. Um, and, and this is a great place to start. So I'm going to go through just a little list. If you would like to make your own knife, uh, here's what you do. First, mm-hmm. get on YouTube. Okay. I, yes. I hate to recommend yes. that, but this is perfect, man. Get on YouTube, how to, how to make a simple knife. There's a lot of great videos. That's how I learned. Just watch three or four of them. Get your head around the basic process. Mm-hmm. Um, then I would recommend getting a piece of O1 tool steel. O1 stands for uh, oil one. So it's oil treated steel Okay, that okay. comes in later in the heat treatment process. Um, about an eighth of an inch thick. Any thicker than that, and you're going to be filing all day. You want to keep it keep it kind of thin for your first knife. Use a okay. simple, do a simple design. Take a knife that you already like, trace it, stick it on the piece of steel, and then get your hacksaw. Put it in a vise, cut it out with a hacksaw. You can do this. Okay. It, se- it okay. seems like something that will never finish at first, but once you get you get the technique, you can rip uh-huh. through this in you know 45 minutes to an hour. You can have the thing cut out. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, after you saw it, you build you a little jig and you, to hold the angle of your file. Mm-hmm. I, 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 when I first made, uh, my first one, I, I screwed the, the knife blank to a two by four and I put up some braces and I stu- and I attached my file to like this long steel rod so I could brace it. There's a video of this oh, on the okay, internet. Yeah, yeah. I'll I'll link some instructional videos in the in the show notes so people can better understand what I'm describing. But you make a jig to maintain the angle of the file as you grind your primary bevel. So that's like if you look at a knife, 
the big wedge area of the, that tapers down to the edge of the blade, that's your primary bevel. And so then you spend some time stroking that thing with the file to grind it. You get your, your, your primary bevel ground, um, then you sand it to the smoothness that you want with mm -hmm. sandpaper, just do it by hand. Takes a while, mm -hmm. but it's okay. Uh, and then you heat treat it. Heat it up real hot till it's nice, glowing orange. Dunk it in some oil. It will catch okay. on fire. You need to hold it with tongs and wear gloves. The oil, okay. Yeah. So you will have like, tongs. you'll have a flaming knife in in your tongs. Just, <laughs> you know, I'm, it's okay. I'm, I'm imagining someone just listening to this as they're doing it, and they pause it yeah. just before you say you need tongs. <laughs> you need tongs. So, and they're like, okay, step next. Put it in the fire. Ah! Yes, please listen to the whole. Watch. The, that's why we're watching videos first, so you can right. see what this looks like. Because the first time you do it, it's a little crazy. Because you say, like, how big is this fire going to get? It's not going to get that big. It's okay. Just wear gloves and use tongs. Uh, and so that's hardening the steel is to heat it up real hot and then to cool it quickly makes it hard so it'll hold an edge and it, and it will you can put a very fine edge on it. And it will cut well and last the edge will last long. And then after that, you make some kind of handle. I just make mine out of wood typically. Uh, and you can glue it on there. If you want to get fancy, you can drill holes and set pins in it. Um, and, you know, then you sand it down and... You make some kind of sheath for it, and you got a knife, and you can go do all sorts of cool outdoorsy stuff with it, and it's a lot you more all gratifying. The nice things, yeah, all this nice stuff. And it's I, and it's part of a it's part of a process. Like we're, we we got to make a choice here. Uh, you know, it's like which way, Western man? Are you going to be right. Homer Simpson, and you're going to sit at like at the control panel, or are you going to and push the button and eat donuts, right. or are you going to be Bob the Builder, Homer Simpson, or right. Bob the Builder? Well, that may be a bad analogy because Homer Simpson, despite himself, was immensely successful. Oh, well, <laughs> his show was. <laughs> he went to space. He got a Grammy. Wow. <laughs> okay, That's like good the point. episode with Grimes. Uh, I, I never saw that. I gave up on The Simpsons a while ago. Oh, that was an early episode. There, there was a, it was the, the premise of that episode was a normal human comes into Springfield and is like working hard and he's barely getting ahead and he's looking at Homer like, what are you doing? And he just goes insane. Are you See, I thought you were talking about Grimes, like Elon Musk's girlfriend. No, no. There's a guy called, I think his name is Frank Grimes in the show. And anyway, Homer invites him over because Homer's upset he doesn't like him. Because mm -hmm. Homer's getting ahead despite not doing anything. And Frank comes over and he's like, uh, he's like, you have a you have a mansion and a beautiful wife? And he's like, you want to, he said, and it, what is this? You're an astronaut? He's like, you've never been to space? <laughs> you know. <laughs> Do you want to see my Grammy? <laughs> no. <laughs> that's a great episode. Yeah, maybe Homer but, Simpson wasn't the best choice for my analogy then. That's okay. But yeah, but uh, yeah, you want to be Bob the Builder as much as you can. I I knew a guy uh, growing up, and he would make knives. He would make. I don't know if he made the knives, but he'd make handles out of deer antlers. Oh, cool. And fit fit the knives, so they were nice looking. Yeah. Um, I tried. I've tried my hand at craftsmanship. Uh, it's it's gone with mixed success. Mm-hmm. I tried to make a bow one time, like a bow and arrow bow. That's tough. And uh, it was, it, I wasn't prepared for the level of skill involved in making that. <laughs> yeah, you really <laughs> have to be a, a craftsman. You really have to be a pra craftsman because that wood will break mm -hmm. upon tension unless you do it just right. You know. Yeah. You put like a you put like a, a hundred pound pull or something on something, and it's gonna it's gonna snap. Yeah. But um, and then it, it's pretty violent when it snaps also. But <laughs> were, were you injured? Uh, no, I was not injured. That's but good. Um, 
No, uh, yeah, you gotta you gotta make things. I I am not a good maker of things, but that's that's probably from lack of practice. It it really is. Uh, that's it, yeah. man. This is this is basic stuff that most people could do. You know, back in the day, you did your own simple blacksmithing. If you had the luxury of sending the complicated stuff to a professional blacksmith, you know, you were probably right. doing pretty good. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we got. So maybe, so we got to reclaim. Yeah, what do you graduate reclaim. to? What's the, so you get good at making a knife? What's your next step? Oh man, I you know I've always wanted to make something like a, an adjustable crescent wrench. Ooh. You know, but I mean that's that's advanced because you've got to you got to turn that threaded bit to to make the adjustment on a lathe. Uh-huh. Um, you, you're working with thick steel, so I'd have to build a a, a forge of some kind to really yeah. to really be able to do that. I was, I was, I got semi good briefly at making things in college when I worked in the laboratory because mm-hmm. we had to, we had to make our own equipment because mm-hmm. you got to make your own physics equipment because like, like, you can't go to the store like, I need a, I need an electrometer for a vacuum chamber so that I can have a particle accelerator. Right. And where do you have those? And so you got to make all your own stuff. And it'll sell those at Walmart. They don't sell those at Walmart. And so, I, you know, I, I built a vacuum chamber, I built a, um, with a lathe and all sorts of stuff. And, uh, it was a lot of fun. It was very, it was very hard and time consuming. I I remember being like, I have a test tomorrow, but I'm trying to turn this lathe. (laughs) Well, just imagine. Okay. So some, something that we, I say we people regard as, as sort of magical equipment, like particle accelerators. Um, there's some guy using a lathe, which is a simple and ancient machine. It's true. To make, a, a particle accelerator, you know, at least well, par- parts I mean, of it. Part of it. You need parts you need it. other pieces, but yeah, for yeah. sure. Uh, we had but a there's tiny... a connection. Like the, yeah. the all this high science stuff doesn't exist in this world somewhere, you know, right. that's untouchable for everybody else. I mean, if you want to, you get the right books, you could probably make some pretty cool physics equipment in your garage. And people do it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. they do. Uh, I mean the most important guy at the lab was Clive the machinist. There you go. Because Cl- Clive made stuff for everybody. Yep. You know, it's like, I need a tiny doohickey to do a thing, mm-hmm. you know? And so Clive and all the physicists would go to Clive and be like, Hey, Clive. And Clive would sit down there and, you know, with his leather apron. He yeah. was a big, he was not very safe around radiation though. Clive, poor guy. That's a shame. He, he didn't follow the, uh, the, um, warning signs carefully, but he, 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 he made it through. He made it through. That's good. But <laughs> yeah. So, I think it's time for spooky music. Oh. I ain't afraid of no ghost. That's right. That's right. Now this one, this segment isn't actually very spooky though today. It's not okay. spooky. It's um. Not, last time I talked about cattle mutilations. Mm-hmm. Time spooky. before that was astrology, which is. It's not very spooky. Mm. Uh, before that was the goblins. That's pretty spooky. Yeah. But th- this is this is this is just science. This is we are on the cutting edge of science here. Okay. And it is what what we're going to be talking about is a um, is a hypothesis with a lot of uh, evidence behind it that is gaining ground on the fringes of the scientific world, and that may one day become a dominant paradigm if more ex- if more experiments are done about it. And mm. here's the thing. You guys out there listening can help in this experimentation. Fun. All right? This is we're bringing science back to the people. Yes. And we're going to discuss some science. And look, 
some of it is might be considered by skeptics as uh, some woo. Mm-hmm. Some of it may be some woo. I don't know. Okay. But if no, if, but if you do this science and uh, whether results come back positive or negative, if no one else publishes it, we will publish it. Sweet. We will become. We we are going to be have our own scientific journal here, basically. Oh, that's going to be great. It's going to be fantastic. If you are out there and you're a Wiccan and you want to do some Wiccan science, write it up, take careful notes, send it to us. We will publish your results and see if other people can replicate it. And I can guarantee that our peer review is going to be much better quality than that of the prevailing right. institutional science Look, if, science publications. If you want to prove that your magic ritual works, I'm up for listening to it. <laughs> Just write it up in a paper, and then we'll have someone else try to do don't, it also and see if they can replicate it, right? Don't, but, <laughs> don't do sorcery. Please don't. Right. But you don't, know what I mean. Don't. But this is this is, going to sound like sorcery, but it's just science. Okay. Okay. That's what, so, that's what sorcerists, sorcerers I know, always say. I know. Yeah. Look, alchemy, alchemy gave birth to chemistry, right? That's... <laughs> Astron- uh, which makes me which makes me question my my uh, career choice. <laughs> I know, I know. Okay, so I'm going to be talking about the work primarily of a man named Rupert Sheldrake. You ever heard of Rupert? No. Rupert uh, is a doctor of bio. I think it's um, biomolecular chemistry or biomolecular biology, one of the two. Mm-hmm. Uh, from Cambridge, he he got his degree at Cambridge. He's an Englishman. Uh, he taught at Cambridge for several years. He's 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 an el- he's an older gentleman now. I think he's in his late seventies, so he's mm-hmm. retired from that. But he still does a lot of work. Uh, a lot of uh, he publishes a lot of papers. And this man has done some very very interesting research, and he has some very interesting theories. Enough, he has enough empirical data to back up his stuff that even the hardened skeptics have to take him somewhat seriously. Cool, right? Even like he's he's debated Daniel Dennett. Uh, I think he did Sam Harris at one time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he's like, well, look, I have I have evidence of some of this stuff I talk about, right? Uh, and that's what you got to be. I had a, I remember having a discussion some years ago with some religious people, and there were some Christians there, and some uh, maybe maybe one of them was a Jewish person, and uh, what was the other one? Something else. Anyway, and uh, I, we were talking about spiritual growth, you know, and becoming better. And I I brought a, I asked. How would one? How would you tell if you're growing spiritually or not? Like, how could you measure it? And at the time, I didn't mean measure like science. I mm-hmm. meant like just how could you have a metric to see if you were actually getting better? Okay. You know, like like could you look at some lifestyle behavior or whatever? But they took it as like when I said that they they all took it as like I was talking about like a measurement with like a device, okay, or like a rule, right? And they all like, well, you can't measure that the soul or the spirit, you know? And I was like, I was like, well, I wouldn't talk about that. And later I got to thinking about it and I was like, why can't you, mm. you know, like if, if the spirit and the soul interact with matter, as we claim they do, there ought to be a way to measure that interaction. Ah, right. They're like, they can't be totally separate. Otherwise it right. wouldn't make, like, like right. they have to hook together at some level. Right. Yeah, if the like spirit the... influences the soul and the matter of the spirit and vice versa, like all religions claim, mm-hmm. then there has to be uh, at some level a linkage. Yep. At some level, the spirit must must act as a force upon matter. Mm-hmm. So, so right. the spirit necessarily can uh, uh, produce a physical force. 
Right. Of necessity. Yeah. Right. That, that's uh, <laughs> Otherwise, God couldn't create the world like that. Is it right? The spirit right. must must connect at some level. Right. Well, that's so, a really that's a big idea that has to be grokked before this conversation can continue. I mean, yeah, I know. that's People pretty are huge. Like, Wait, so I'm so so Rupert Sheldrake has done work on actually measuring some of these things. And he's quite quite a brilliant fellow. Now, I will say, uh, now he's an Anglican man, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I think he's very devout. Uh, if you listen to him, sometimes he will stray off into areas where you're like, I don't know about that, Rupert. That's a bit weird. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can't, I can't, I can't. You know, you can never get a genius without being an eccentric. Yeah, you, yeah. you know. So he's got some weird stuff about him, but but he's also. You can't argue his credentials. Cambridge, doctorate, teacher, professor there. You know, he has hard data. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and I first I first came aware of him because he, he was one of these people that was actually test things. Like he would, uh, you know, when the crop circles were big? Yeah. He said, and people were like, well, you know, these can't be humans because people couldn't make these things. And so he said, well, let's see. And so he got together some money and he put out a prize money. He said, and he made some complicated designs. He said, go, if you can make this in one night, you win the prize money. And people did. And he was like, well, there you go. So we've proven that it can be done. We, can, we didn't prove any individual crop sticker was done by a human, mm-hmm. but we did prove it is theoretically possible that they could do it in one night. And yeah. then he was like, so that part of the debate is settled. I remember right? that thing going down. Okay. So that's the, the this is that guy. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, Rupert. Okay. Rupert. So, okay. So Rupert's done some great things, uh, and he he is primarily known for his for promoting the theory of morphogenetic fields. Okay. Now he did not come up with a theory of morphogenetic fields. That was come up with in I believe the 1920s by a few other biologists. One of them uh, won a Nobel Prize in the 50s, if I remember correctly. I don't mm-hmm. remember his name, but so not not lightweights people that won Nobel prizes. Mm-hmm. And this is trying to address the problem of form. Okay, the biologists have that the, the problem of form has been a big uh, sticking point. So, what, what is it, form? Well, okay, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to ask, what is the problem of form? Well, the problem of form is uh, I and you and uh, marmosets and uh, oak trees and mm-hmm. bananas were all made of basically the same stuff: mm-hmm. carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, hydrogen, right? The bio, the the biochemistry, we're all almost a hundred percent those four things. Yeah, right. We have some trace elements and some calcium and whatever, but we're all mostly those four things, and um, we're all basically the same percentage water with mm-hmm. slight variations. Mm-hmm. And so the problem of form is well, um, then why are we all very different, right? Like if. If you take apart, if you if you put a uh, smokestack in a furnace mm-hmm. and you burn him up into his constituent elephants el- elements mm-hmm. <laughs> or elephants, he looks no different <laughs> than if you did that with an elephant, right? Right, right. Like uh, you can't tell the difference. The, the the elements are the same inside there. Yeah. So where does it come from? Now this is a big problem. And then what? What? Like how does the matter take a form? And like that's like when I talk about form, I mean actually like a shape, mm-hmm. like. How does the matter, how does, how does the life become like a human hand instead of a butterfly wing when mm-hmm. it's the same stuff? Mm-hmm. Well, this problem was a big problem, and then genetics come along. 
And genetics appear to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we've been going on this for a while with the genetics. And then Rupert has come along and said, ah, but wait, genetics don't solve the problem. Ooh. Okay. <clears throat> for various reasons. Number one is that for, uh, he, bring, he brings up quite rightly that at the beginning, the human genome was finally sequenced in the year 2000. Or was it 2001? Early 2000. Yeah. The Human Genome Project was completed. And there were, there were huge companies, like so many companies that were like ready for this. And they had been built around this idea because they knew it was going to happen. And they were promising all sorts of things like curing diseases, manufacturing your babies with different you know, hair and eye colors that you wanted, mm-hmm. um, you know, genetic therapy, all these things. It was going to be huge. And they all collapsed because it was immediately apparent within the first couple of months after the genome was sequenced that it, you couldn't do much with it. Okay, just stop right there. Okay. This utter... Okay. This just sounds so incredible to me. If that's the truth, if that's really the situation... Yeah. And we're still talking about, you know, you're you're watching... You're watching the BASF commercial, and there's, like, some scientist in his white lab coat, you know, and he's, like, the priest of the universe, and he's going to create this cure for cancer or whatever... And they, they're not even close. No, no. no. They're not even they, close I mean, to any of the baloney that they've been shilling since the 90s. No, no. That's true. And, and I mean, I don't want to disparage cancer doctors because they've done some great strides. Sure, sure. We've made, we've made huge strides. But, but. But I want a flying car full of cancer cures. And I keep, you know, if it's been, it, they've been saying, oh, it's right around the corner. We're almost there. Just give a little bit more money and we can do it. And you're telling right. me that that the whole human genome project didn't live up to its promises. And that, that has not been advertised. It, it did not live up. In fact, here's how much it didn't. So there, was two, there were two competing things. There was a private enterprise to do it led by this one guy and his company. And there was a public-funded public research project to do it. Okay. And the private guy was very competitive and he won. I forget his name. But the company that basically, the, the, the main company that did the sequencing of the human genome was owned by this fellow. And I wish I remembered his name. I didn't. But, and he was interviewed later. Uh, his stock collapsed from $60 a share to 14 cents a share. Wow. In the span of about three or four months. And he's, he was a very, I mean, he was a, I mean, uh, he's a cool guy. He didn't disparage this. He, on the news later, he said, uh, well, you know, I made a million dollars the hard way by mar- working my way down from a billion. <laughs> <laughs> And so, you know, he had a good sense of humor about it. Yeah. But, uh, but it was immediately apparent after they sequenced these, uh, these, this genome that, you know, the human genome has been sequenced for like two decades now. And where are all these genetic cures that we were promised? Where are the designer babies? They're not there because you can't, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And it, there are some things now it's not been t- a total loss. Like yeah. it's very good for, it's been very good for, um, genealogy. Mm-hmm. You can trace the you can trace your ancestors back very well. That's why Twenty Three and Me is there. Twenty Three and Me actually began as a company promised uh, to sequence your genome and tell you your genetic risk for for diseases. Yeah, but the FDA shut that down, and they went into a temporary sort of I don't know if full bankruptcy or quasi bankruptcy because of it. Right. Because uh, the FDA said you actually cannot deliver on this promise. There's no way to. They said you cannot tell with any accuracy the so, disease is somewhere. Okay, so that's really interesting. So, so yeah. are you telling me that all these all these tests that these uh, these doctors are selling 
saying, oh, get this genetic test and it'll tell you your, your predisposition for this or that thing. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. really. It does for a few diseases, but not for very many. Because the, there, there are some diseases that are, you just have a bad gene that makes a bad protein. Okay. One of those is, one of those is uh, sickle cell anemia. Okay. Right? Yeah. You can tell with a 100% genetic test whether or not you, will, you have that or will have it. Okay. And there's a few others like that. Mm-hmm. I think Tay-Sachs disease is like that. I'm not sure. Okay. But, um, uh, but most diseases, like your, your, your cancer rate, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you can't tell. You can't, you, there's at best like a 10% correlation between a genetic marker and whether or not you'll get that. So the FDA actually shut down 23andMe's disease business, and then they shifted to just genetics okay. and like ancestry. Um, so that's, that's when the CIA bought them. Sorry, sorry. Probably, just, that's probably. Slipped, that slipped out. Sorry. <laughs> so, um, and some other things. There's that. It's called the herit- heritability problem, which mm-hmm. is another way of stating the problem of form. Uh, it's like how do characteristics become inherited? Because you can you can predict the height of a child with eighty percent accuracy based on the height of the parents. So you average the height of the parents, and then you say, well, it's going to be within that range, plus or minus some inches, and you're eighty percent right. You know, mo- you're right eighty percent of the time. Right. Okay. Now, when the genome was sequenced, they took at, shortly after they did some tests and they got 30,000 people, 30,000 different people. And they had their complete genome for each of these people and they had their height. Mm-hmm. And they ran all sorts of statistics. They did all the measurements. They looked at all of it. And then they predicted what the heights of these people would be based on their genes. And then they looked it up to see if they were right. Right? Mm-hmm. They were right with an accuracy of 5%. Ah! Right, whereas uh, just measuring the just measuring the heights of the of the of the mom and dad, you were uh, right eighty percent of the time. You say, well, they're going to be the average of that plus or minus like three inches, and that's where they're going to be. And you can you know you can. Oh, I love it. This is already was, my favorite segment we've ever done. This I is know. the best. I, I know because we have to we have to take down materialism. Yeah, and and Rupert Sheldrake has been the 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 lightning the the blitzkrieg against this okay for about 40 years operating at a low i mean a lot a lot of people he's toward the end of his life his work is gaining notice okay because it takes like decades for this to filter down to the consciousness right yeah 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 but but uh he's done some tremendous work he also points out some other things which you just think about him you're like well yeah okay that doesn't mean it's like uh so if genetics so the the popular idea is that genetics is like a computer code mm-hmm it's like a code for, and it tells the it tells the cells of the body how to do, and yep. that was supposed to explain the the problem of form, mm-hmm. right? But as an aside, uh, dot aside here, mm-hmm. man has always interpreted the cosmos in relation to whatever his highest technology is. That's why Adam and Eve are like clay figures because the pottery, right? Uh-huh. And then, and then in the clockwork, when clockwork was the new thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why you had the fully automatic universe in the 17th and 18th centuries, because it was like, oh yeah, well it's just a clockwork. The universe is a clock; it's just running. That's why today we think everything is a computer program and we live in a simulation or a hologram. <laughs> that's why that's that the popular. That is theory. a profound observation. Yeah, whatever your most fundamental technology is, like the like the seafaring peoples all thought that the creation happened via the sea and like the gods sailed there on ships. That whatever your highest technology is, that is what man instinctively interprets the universe through okay. but it's just that's just a lens right it's not right we are not computers but anyway so aside over so the the uh, idea that 
was that okay? Well, we have just invented computers, and therefore we must also be computers. I mean, that's the that's the what was going on in their heads in the background subconsciously. Right. And it, it sounds ridiculous, but it's very persuasive in the moment. Well, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. It's so it's so cool and posh to say, oh, we're yes. just we're just like wet computers, bro. You know? Yes. We're yeah. just it's, we're meat computers. And and a bro. lot of it, a lot of it's just a new idea, and you're like, whoa, maybe so, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, but it, anyway, this this took hold because computers were becoming so advanced and we thought wow yeah uh we're just like super advanced computers right and uh uh so genetics was thought to be the computer code okay but as we've as we've gone more into genetics the problems with that have become numerous Uh, number one think about this okay uh uh, you know we're made of cells Mm -hmm. a muscle cell in your arm and a muscle cell in your leg have it 100% identical genetics. Yet somehow the muscle cells in your leg have formed a leg and the ones in your arm have formed an arm. Uh-huh. Right? So mm-hmm. they're running the same computer code, quote unquote, if it is a code. How did one decide to do that and the other decide to do this, right? Because if it was a code, you'd think, okay, well, this cell in this part of the body must have a slightly different code to form itself. Yeah. Right? And this Because they're all running the same. If you look down the middle of the cell, they all have the same DNA. So the code really doesn't extend beyond its own cell wall. Right. Okay. Uh, Another problem is you have – we know that transplants are possible. Mm -hmm. And not just between other people but between also in some cases animals and people. Yep. Okay. So if you're having – if life is coded, the thought that the code for one machine, you just smash it onto the code of another machine and it's going to run perfectly Mm – is very unlikely. Yep. Does not <laughs> like fit. You, yeah. And that sounds like it might happen to someone that's never coded a computer, but if you make a computer program and then someone says, oh, I made a computer program too, let's copy and paste them together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not going to run. Would just, <laughs> that would not run in the slightest, right? If, and it, just do a simple computer program uh, and then do have another and try to mash them together. And I'm like, error at run, you know. So how does that work? Another thing is hybrid animals. Like mm-hmm. we know that uh, uh, wolfins exist, which are my favorite uh, killer whales slash dolphins. Really? That's a thing. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. what uh, killer whales are porpoises. They're just <clears throat> aside again. Another aside. Okay. Killer whales are not whales. Killer whales are a kind of porpoise. That that it was a mistranslation of the Spanish who first saw them kill whales. They mm. were the Spanish word is whale killers, and uh. the English word became killer whales, and so we think they're whales but they're actually just a form of porpoise that hunts whales interesting wolfins are real wolfins are real indecide uh wolfins uh ligers Mm -hmm. mules right uh uh, zorses uh coyotes Mm -hmm. uh all all of these different animals that you can take two different species that are close related put them together you get a new animal right okay that's an even more insane proposition than the transplant problem if they're running computer code. Mm-hmm. Because computer code of coyote and computer code of wolf should not be so – I mean think of all the things you have to – Well, the there, need, pro- there needs to be a higher level of operating <laughs> right. to be able to, to merge the codes together and exactly. average their if, contents. If the, if the DNA is all it is, right? think of the precision that needs to happen to like attach a tendon to yeah. a bone. Yeah. There needs to if be a DNA management – Super system. You get that off a little bit. Like if your heart valve is off a little bit, yeah, you're gonna die. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And so there's all these huge problems, 
with uh, the DNA model. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Sheldrake, Sheldrake has, has rightly pointed them out, and a lot of biologists admit this. Like We don't understand the heritability problem yet, uh, which is the same thing as the rephrasing of the problem of form. Now, one of the things that people did um, to try and combat this problem early on in the early 1900s is they brought up the theory of fields. Okay. okay. So fields, we take them for granted now, electromagnetic field, mm-hmm. right? Or magnetic field or a gravitational field. But you got to understand when that was first introduced by Faraday, mm-hmm. that was like a cult. Because <laughs> he was like, okay, look, guys, there's like an invisible thing here and it moves stuff and you can't touch it and you can't see it. But if you put something in its path, it's going to conform to its shape. And everyone was like, Faraday, <laughs> have you been doing acid? And he was like, no, look, look, I'm making a magnetic field. Now, look, there's a magnet, but you got – I know that it pulls things to it, but it does that because around it is this invisible field. And I'm going to drop some iron particles, and look, it takes the shape of the field. And everyone was like, whoa. You know, that was a huge leap in science. I'm surprised he wasn't burned at the stake. I, I mean, it was, it was highly controversial. People today are like, yeah, yeah, yeah field. Again, they were they had invented clockwork. Like mm-hmm. they, had the, the, our machinery had gotten so precise, we could do industrial machines and clockwork and stuff. And that's how they were interpreting the world because that was their latest technology. Mm-hmm. And so the dominating theory at the time, and still in a lot of people's minds, oddly, is mm-hmm. that the world is just little pieces of particles bumping into each other. Yep. And everything is matter, right? Mm-hmm. And they're just they're just bumping into each other, and that's what's causing everything. Okay. And he was like, no, there's like this other whole thing. It's like a field. And they're like, what? What? But he, you know, he could prove it. And uh, and so that was a huge thing. And then they said, well, maybe there's gravitational fields and stuff. Okay. So then some biologists got to thinking, well, what if, what if form problem of form can be explained by fields? Mm. Same, same sort of principle. And they said, they called it the morphogenetic field, and that means just the genesis of morphology, the genesis of form, right? So you're saying there's like a, a person-shaped invisible field surrounding yes. my body and directing, that sound ridiculous? directing the development of my <laughs> material. Right, and doesn't okay. that sound absurd? I mean, however, yeah. however let's, uh, Sheldrake points out, he says, uh, look, um, there's numerous animals – if the, we were machines, if this genetic code thing was happening, if, he's like, if you cut up a machine, you get a broken machine, mm-hmm. right? However, if you cut up a field, like you take a magnet and you cut it in half, you get two small magnets. Mm-hmm. They're complete. They have a North Pole and a South Pole. Mm-hmm. The field just gets smaller, but it's the same thing you had at the beginning. Right. And he says, well, if you notice, there are many species, like take a flatworm, for example. You can cut it up into 10 species and it will into 10 slices, and each piece will reshape itself into a tiny flatworm. Same thing with starfish. Same thing with sea urchins, right? Mm -hmm. Many of these species, you cut them up, and they will, like the willow tree, for example, the willow tree can regenerate from almost nothing. Mm -hmm. You cut up a willow tree and just plant each piece, and it will just form into a whole willow tree. Really? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, and so, and all these, um, there are tons of species, particularly simple animals and plants, that have this uh, enormous regenerative properties. And how to explain that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like, for instance, if you take a sea urchin when it's just been uh, fertilized, that's not really the correct thing because I don't think they have eggs and sperm, but you know, when they're just forming, mm-hmm. 
and they go to the two cell stage. So you have a new individual that has one cell and it splits into two. Mm-hmm. Well, they found that if you, if when you do that, if you kill one of the cells at that early stage of development, you would think like, well, okay, we, the series is going to die, but no, it develops into a sea urchin of half size, perfectly ah. formed. Ah. Conversely, if you take one at a stage and you slam on the cells of another developing embryo, mm-hmm. you get a sea urchin of giant size. <laughs> but they, the material just formed to the same fe- to the same shape. Okay, it took its form regardless of what you did to it, right? And also, so what that's and- saying is there is something in one cell, or there's something there. That generates a certain size field in the um, yes. in the sea urchin embryo, and right. then there's another one in the other sea urchin embryo, uh-huh. and that that field generating capability doesn't increase over time; it stays the same, right? Because the 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 creature has a determinate size. But if you take two of those embryos and smush them together, the 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 limited field strength doubles and creates right. a double size. Sea urchin. Right. And this happens with, with, with many species. This happens with many kind of simple species because, but here's what you got. That is exactly how fields would work. If you take a magnet and you add another magnet, the, the fields double. Yeah. If you take a magnet and you, you take a op- polar opposite magnet and put them on top of each other, the fields cancel. Mm-hmm. That's how these, that's how, mag- that's how fields work. Mm-hmm. And so this is beginning to, so this idea of like, well, maybe this field stuff is real. Maybe there is a field which – so the, the, the genetic idea is that you're being pushed from the past. Like you have gen- genomes yep. and it's pushing your development. The field idea is that you're being pulled. Right. Life is being pulled to its final development. Okay. Okay. By, by a field. So now, that, that way it's able to correct. That's why it's able to correct. That's why you can heal. That's why the body is able to heal because it's, it's forming to the field. Another piece of evidence, and this is this was fantastic when he when he talked about this. He said, "Well, I encountered some. You know, he said, unfortunately, these days we have a fair number of uh, men who've lost limbs in war." Mm-hmm. He said, "I encountered uh, a fair number of them that have so-called phantom limb syndrome," and so I had the idea. Well, what if that's just exactly what it sounds like? That's just the field is still there. Uh-huh. They just don't have the matter to fill it. Ooh, right? Yeah, <laughs> and so. And so Rupert, rather than just coming up with a crazy idea as someone covered in Cheeto dust, you know, high on his couch, <laughs> like, what if it's really there? <laughs> Rupert designed some experiments to test it. Uh-huh. And he did. And you can do this at home, too. Uh, if you are an Iraq, Iraq veteran that sadly got a limb blown off, you can contribute to this science. Okay? Wow. Because you can do this at your house. What he did was he took uh, he just had a door. <laughs> and he took an amputee, put the amputee on one side of the door with a dice roller. Mm-hmm. And he marked six areas on the door, for one for each side of the dice. And he would they would roll the dice, and it would come up with a number. And then the amputee would push his phantom limb through the door, mm-hmm. through that segment of the door. Like, if two comes up, you put a, push it through section two. Mm-hmm. And then he got someone, some people that claim, they claim to do acupuncture, energy work, chi stuff, like mm-hmm. Eastern medicine. Mm-hmm. He said, well, just... Tell me which which panel the uh, the phantom limb came through and write it down, and then we'll compare what actually happened on this side of the door to what you think happened, right? Mm-hmm. And if it's just if it was just what you would expect, if modern science is true, is that uh, the modern you know paradigm is true, not science itself, but yeah, is that you would get one sixth 
accuracy. Mm-hmm. It'd just be random chance. Right. But he found consistently that these people, and they get better at it over time, were achieving results at greater than chance success. So, Whoa. you know, yeah. what, <laughs> what could that be? And so you can think, like, could we design some other experiments to test the idea of the presence of this um, field? And he's done some uh, some various uh, ones, most of them around his idea of, my, of morphic resonance, which I'll talk about in a minute. Okay. But if these fields exist, we ought to be able to manipulate them in some way and to cause the uh, form of organisms to shift, perhaps only slightly at first, because we're mm-hmm. still, you know, uh, as they develop. And this is something you could, you, could, you could all experiment at your house with, with various plants, maybe mushrooms, other such things, right, that grow. And you could try to see if you could, in fact, manipulate the fields. <clears throat> so um, now here's the thing. What are these fields? And this is where Sheldrake, this is where Sheldrake, he goes from this and he takes a um, dagger right at the heart of all materialism. Okay. Okay. Because here's the, here's the genius place. So he says, okay. Um, these, I've got, I've got lots of evidence for these fields. Um, it, it, it has some explanatory power. I can't hundred percent prove it yet, but you know, <clears throat> and he says, well, how does the field work? The field is a habit in nature. Okay. Mm-hmm. This is the fundamental difference here. Here we go. Um, when, his idea is that when a thing happens, it is then more likely to happen in the future. Like a habit has been formed in nature. It's basically a crease made in reality. Mm-hmm. So when when the first spider came into existence, that form that was was creased into existence. Mm-hmm. And then in the future, it was easier for more spiders to fall into that path. Initially, that strikes me as as a as a theory coming from an evolutionary perspective, but maybe it's not. Well, he's not an anti evolutionist. Okay. He. Um, because this would this would explain how that could happen. Okay. Right. Um, which genetics cannot explain. So, um, you you have this crease in reality. But here's the thing: if you do that, he realized uh, that would imply that everything in reality was was in the same way a habit. Mm-hmm. And this is why it is a full theory. It's a completely new take on science. Because he said, well, okay, what if the laws of the universe aren't laws so much as just habits? Mm. Right? And that actually makes things make so much sense. Because think about it. Have you ever done measurements on like an electric circuit or something? No. Have you ever done measurements in chemistry lab? Yeah, a little bit. Okay. <clears throat> what do you do? You take 10 measurements and mm-hmm. you take the average and you say, that's what it is. Right. Why? Right. Yeah, well, you're you're trying to correct for your error, your right, yeah, right. statistical error. And, and so, and he's so his point was, well, we presume that our measurements, what we presume is that there is a set result, and that our measurements are dancing around the set result, and that if we take the average, we're pretty close. Mm-hmm. He said, and, and we presume that the deviation is due to our error, but there's no evidence for that. What if that's just actually what it is each time we measure it? Ah, uh. right. And that, and that, that the universe is actually has a habit of doing a certain thing, but it dances around that habit. 
right? And so um, there's no reason to suspect that if you measure the voltage of, say, coming out of your of of your uh, coming off of an electron, and it's one EV now and one point zero 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 two EV next time, that it's just an error in your in your device. Mm-hmm. What if that's just actually what it was? <clears throat> right. You see, and uh, one of the ways he thought, well, okay, <clears throat> if that they said that's a pretty cockamamie idea. Well, I'll go back and see if there's any evidence of this. He went back over decades of the 20th century. We kept records of they, – they published these – in chemistry, they published these journals about like melting points and stuff mm-hmm. of all the different elements and compounds. And they do uh, – periodically, they retest them to make sure, you know, mm-hmm. and they republish it. And it's about every five years or so. And <clears throat> he found that particularly with new compounds or new things, the melting point of various compounds changed over the decades by up to 30 degrees. Whoa. So you think, you know, we published That's this not a, a small change. No, we published this in a paper and like, well, here's the melting point. We synthesize this new material and it melts at this, right? Mm-hmm. And what he found is that it actually, it changes over time. And his theory was like, well, this is perfectly consistent with a habit in nature. Like, if you practice something, you get better at it. So the first time this is ever synthesized, uh, it's less stable because the groove has not been worn in reality yet, and so it melts easier. But as you make it more and more often, it becomes more and more stable, and the melting point should go up. Right? Because it's more stable. Because the groove worn in reality, that sort of crease in reality, has been more and more uh, deepened. So would that mean that plutonium was made more recently than lead? Yes, which would make sense, because they're more more, uh, complicated atoms. Mm -hmm. Right? And so um, things that have been around in nature for a very long time, like water, have very predictable habits, mm-hmm. right? But new things that we make or new things that we do, mm-hmm. have, um, they have to be habituated. And so their behavior is sort of – this is why there's a replicability crisis in science. Yeah. I don't know if you've read about this. Oh, yeah. There's been a there's been a lot of articles published, and this is not me being a crazy conspiracy theorist. This is in mainstream journal that up to fifty percent of all things published in scientific journals cannot be replicated, and yeah, they've been testing this because they're like, well, you know, they got to they're like, well, you know, we haven't replicated a lot of these things, and science is supposed to replicate it. Let's go back and do it as a formality just to prove it, right? Because they just assume, <laughs> and they're like, mistake. what? A second, a lot of this stuff doesn't work. Yeah, and so a lot of right wing people have been like, aha, see, they're lying. They're uh-huh. lying. Or they're just, and some of it, sure, probably is a lot just to get a grant or whatever. Yeah. But a lot of it could just be that they were doing new stuff and that that ha- habit hadn't formed in nature yet. Oh. And if you recall, do you recall anyone that's been to school, you do an experiment in the lab and it never works. Yeah. It never works, despite they give you the most basic experiments. Mm-hmm. And, you, and we all say like, oh, well, it's just because high schoolers and college students suck. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. But. No, what if it's just that things happen slightly differently? Right. And that that makes the macro world line up with the quantum world. Yeah. That's the beauty of it. Because the quantum world is all statistical basis. On average, it does this, but it could do anything. Right, right. <laughs> right? The particle might tunnel through the whole universe, or it might just do what we expect. Right. It's very improbable that it will tunnel through the whole universe, but it's not impossible. Mm-hmm. And then... Schrodinger is saying, well, that's true all the way up. That's true all the way up because reality is habitual, not immutable laws. Ah. Okay? That's the thing. Now, 
Um, now, there are habits that are so ingrained they feel like immutable laws, okay? But that's, that's fine. They've been around for a long time. Um, so... Okay, wait, stop. So yes. does this mean that, according to this theory, the universe is getting more stable and predictable over time? Uh, yes and no. That's the beauty of it. So uh, this, was, this was put to him, actually, before. He was, I, I found out about him uh, in part because of Terrence McKenna. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Friend of Terrence. <laughs> friend of Terrence. <laughs> okay. And, and, that makes uh, sense. That makes sense. Because Terrence, Terrence had this idea of novelty. Because he said, you know, what appeared to him, and, it, and, it, and it's true if you think about it, uh, Terrence said, it appears to me that the universe is a novelty creation machine and that novelty increases with time. He says, you know, for the first, if, if we believe the standard narrative, mm-hmm. at first there was like millions of years of just like vague gas. Mm-hmm. And then they finally coalesced into atoms. And then that finally coalesced into uh, molecules and then that into planets, you know, and it gets quicker as time goes on. Okay. Right. The change gets quicker. Like, so you spend like a billion years. It's just like vague molecules. And then, uh, then you get like into only hundreds of millions of years when you're making planets. And then like only just millions of years to make life. And then only just thousands of years to make, uh, different kinds of life and only just, you know, decades to make technology. And, you know, so it's this increasing of novelty mm-hmm. as time goes on. Which his idea was in part what gave birth to the idea of the singularity, which is you know, eh. but but that but his observation that that complexity increases and increases at an increasing rate with time appears to be true. Okay. And so he was like, but uh, he 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 saw Rupert and he was like, well, I was like, but my theory can't account for how things don't just how things stay the same, <laughs> you know? Right. And. Uh, so he's put it to Rupert. He said, I saw this and I thought, well, maybe, maybe our two theories are compatible, but he, and he questioned Rupert and he said, now the problem with your theory is that if everything is habit, how does anything new happen at all? Will. Right. Will perhaps. Yeah. But how is there any room for it to happen? Right. And one of the things that they, that Rupert hypothesized like, well, this is because the universe is always expanding. And as it expands, it's actually physically going into new space. Mm-hmm. Like new space is being created. And therefore, again, this, the, the material is not separate from the spiritual. The new space is actually a new presents new possibility. Okay. Right. Because the creases haven't been made yet. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's how novelty can occur. So not everything is determined, but also, so you have this nice balance of chaos and order. This nice balance of new things coming into existence, but also habitual things being redone. So I think about uh, newly created space as being far away at the edge of the universe somewhere, but it doesn't necessarily have to be located at any particular spot. Well, it's located everywhere. It's more like a, they say it's more like a balloon inflating. Okay. Not like that. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's everywhere all the time. So, um, okay, so you've got you've got this this idea. And then another thing you found was that crystals, you know, we, we make different compounds and some of them are crystalline. Mm-hmm. Crystals, when you make a new compound, they synthesize faster as you do it more often. And that's it. It's like the reverse of the melting point thing. Like as you make the crystals, they become easier to make. Really? Like universally or in this one spot? Universally. Universally. Like all over. Like if a lab in Australia has started making a new compound, then, and they publish it, then the, the time it takes for that compound to synthesize in the UK is reduced. You're you're pulling my. And line. you can prove this. 
No, you can prove this by looking at the published data of, of these uh, of these compounds and how long it takes to synthesize and stuff. And it's like there's a clear if you grasp it, it's like this all over the world is getting easier to make. Holy cow! And then, and then at some point, at some point, the habit becomes pretty well formed and balanced against the other habits of of other things, and it sort of stabilizes. But it still goes back and forth, right? <clears throat> so. Um, so this is uh, this is a wild idea, <laughs> uh, but it sort of makes because it, it it not only does it connect the quantum to the macro, it also connects it to the person mm-hmm. because because that's the way we behave. We were habitual creatures, mm-hmm. you know. Like uh, we addict to everything. You know, you addict to all your behaviors. You addict to other people, and we call that the highest form of goodness, which is love, right? And so all of all of this. Uh, it, it sort of is a holistic. It's it's a it's an idea that takes every single piece of observable reality into existence. It's habit, not uh, so much an immutable law. So mor- morphic re- resonance is the habits, habits of the no, universe. No, mo- well, well, morphic. That's morphic fields is the habit. Morphic resonance is a slightly different idea. Sheldrake did not come up with morphic fields. He did come up with the idea of morphic resonance. Okay. Morphic resonance is the idea. That um, is this idea of how these habits are accessed, basically. So, oh. so the the if there is this field, like, well, how do you partake of it? Okay, we're gonna and, have to do a whole nother segment on morphic resonance. <laughs> okay. We are because we're running. We're, our show is incredibly long. We're running out of time, and we. Okay. I have the feeling that, that that could go on for a long time. It could. It could. So we'll save that for next time. I'll talk about morphic resonance. So wrap up but, wrap up fields for us. Give us give us kind of an overall okay. review. All right. This theory began from noticing that the problem of form in life could not be explained by even genetics. Okay. And so they thought, well, how do these forms come into existence? And one of the theories that was popular before genetics, but which genetics superseded, but has now failed to deliver on its promise, mm-hmm. was the idea of a field-based, like a biological field. Like there's an electric field, there's a gravitational field, there is a field of life, right? Ooh. And that things are grown into their fields. And these fields exist because they've existed before. It's a habit in nature. The field of the spider exists. It's a it, it has been done, and so you could, if you imagine reality as this shape, it has been grew, it has been a, folded there. Mm-hmm. Like there's a crease there. Yep. And so future matter can fall into that crease, right, and become that thing. Or you could maybe and, push it out of that crease. Or you could push it out of that crease. With it. Yeah, exactly. And that's how different. That's how different. Like the, the sea urchin thing. Exist. Yeah. Right. Right. And that's how different types of spiders exist. That's how right. hybrids can exist because mm-hmm. their fields can merge. That's how you can transplant a pig's heart valve onto a person because the field can be merged it can't be merged like a hundred percent in all cases of course right there are some fields that are so radically different they start to cancel each other out mm-hmm. uh and this and so things are grown into this field and this idea of this field has the evidence of the sea urchins and the flatworms and the explains transplants and you can sort of measure it like he's done tests to measure the phantom limb idea um which you should measure at home and that we should then publish. But then if that's true, then you say, well, what if fields are, what if the, the habit part of nature is just universal? And that would explain why quantum mechanics is statistically variable 
it would explain why our measurements are variable over time. And we just assume it the real thing, quote unquote, is the average. Mm-hmm. But really, the average is just what the habit does most of the time with, you know, variations on each side. And that explains and you see evidence for that in both the increasing melting points of new compounds and the decreased speed in which new compounds are synthesized. And that is the habitual view of the world as opposed to the immutable law view of the world where things cannot, uh, things are static. And this is why when we measure things and they are slightly different each time, it's because they actually are. It's not because of we're being dunces, Whoa. right? And so uh, this is, and there, we have even more, we have even more, uh, reason to think this when we get into the idea of morphic resonance and even more proofs of this idea, which I'll talk about next time. But, uh, but anyway, this is something we can, this is the sort of, um, science that we can do that the common man can do, right? You can, you can do these sorts of morphic resonance ideas because you can grow plants. Mm-hmm. You can try to, you know, you can, you can observe these things. It I am, I am absolutely going to do this. <laughs> right. With, so, a, with a plant, I have all my limbs. I can't really. Yeah, I mean there are, there are probably <clears throat> there are other ways that he talks about in his books, which you should look into uh, about testing these things. And all of his tests, almost without fail, have delivered results that you can't. It's like <clears throat> most of them. He he fully admits. He says I don't have this theory nailed down yet. Like I don't have the equations yet. Yeah. But all of his tests, you're like. They're not slam dunks for his theory, but it's like, well, that is very compelling, right? It's like because mm-hmm. you know he's like um, he's done some some tests with rats and chickens, which I'll talk about in uh, in the morphic resonance segment next time. That is seemingly impossible, and you're like, well, okay, that's. I'll just give you a quick taste. Oh. Chickens chickens learn through. So they did, he did an experiment personally with a skeptic that challenged his idea, mm-hmm. right? He said the skeptic invited him to his lab. He said, we'll do it under my conditions, under my eye, and we'll test it. And Sheldrick agreed. Sheldrick goes there. They Now, um, they had two baby chicks peck at everything. Mm-hmm. And they had different things on the ground for them to peck at. They had little silvery spots, right? And they also had little LEDs. Mm-hmm. And the chickens, if they pecked the silvery spots, nothing happened. If they pecked the... Um, the uh, LED, they got a little mild shock. Mm-hmm. And so after not too long, the chickens, the chicks learn not to peck the LED. Mm-hmm. Standard stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay, but what he, what he, Sheldrick predicted was that if you took new chicks that were hatched each day and had them do the same thing, that they would get better at it over time. And in fact, so you think that the chick behavior would be hardwired and it would just do this the same mm-hmm. way every time. But no, over about 100 different sets of chickens, day after day, the likelihood that the chicks would peck the LEDs decreased by something like 70%. Ugh. So the chickens, who are not related to each other, there's no genetic relation to these chickens, have learned this habit from chickens that they are not related to and were not even uh, existed yet when they were born. Right, right? So... It is a crazy idea, but it has a lot of backing, and I'll go into that. Is affected uh, by proximity. No, we'll talk about it next show. You're <laughs> killing me with it. This is awesome. Okay, I know. I, I know. can't wait. Yeah, and Rupert Sheldrake is a terrific guy. Uh, he's if you have a specific question, he he will often just answer you in an email if you just email him. He's a great guy. He, again, I say he's getting on up in years now, mm-hmm. so don't bother him too much. But 
look at his books. He's published all this stuff in his books, and we'll talk about it next time. Uh, but the theory of more, and, and, the, and this is why I said it's a theory of the soul, because mm-hmm. Aristotle said the the soul is the form of the body. Yeah. And the a- animal and anima, and anima is is Greek for soul. Animal mm-hmm. is those with souls, right? So, mm-hmm. so it's the idea of the form as the thing which the the invisible form, the soul is what draws the matter into itself. And so you have a soul of a man, and that pulls the matter, the carbon, the into the form of the man. And so if this is true, we can begin to do empirical testing on the soul itself. Ooh, there you go. And so all of those people that said you couldn't measure the soul, they're all, they're all dumb. They're all, I cannot, I cannot <laughs> wait for next week's show. This is going to be awesome. Yeah. Okay. So it, it's funny. I had a quote picked out to kind of yeah. go with the people skills thing, but right. I think, I think it's going to put a little foreshadowing to our next week's discussion. Okay. And this is, again, from Ivan Illich, who I've been reading a lot of lately. Even though he's a total communist, uh, he has some good points. So I can't hold it against him. And he says, this is talking about right. uh, man living in the industrial world. Increasing uh-huh. manipulation of man becomes necessary to overcome the resistance of his vital equilibrium to the dynamic of growing industries. It takes the form of educational, medical, and administrative therapies. Mm. So that's all there. The creases, yeah. the creases in reality, and 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 pushing them in different directions. The manipulation yeah. of man to fit in a new, uh, right. like spiritual industrial spiritual paradigm. It's it's yeah. all there. It can can be placed in that context of of morphogenetic fields and morphic resonance. Yeah, and then take that idea, take that idea of the morphogenetic field idea, and then think about ideas of like death and like heaven and hell, and then you start to get they start to get very interesting. Oh man. <laughs> Like, oh, what if what if death is just a loss of phase coherence? Oh, okay. Just say right. it. Stick that <laughs> stick that in a bottle because we're gonna wrap we're gonna wrap the show. Right. Okay. But that was incredible. You, do you have any uh, part, parting words? Uh, remember your cowboy hats. Yep. And uh, and uh, look at the poetry. Look at the poetry. All right. We'll All do right. it. Talk to you later. It was a good one. Good.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.